Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you are able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitik.com slash donate. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. New details continue to be revealed by reporters and sources leaking tapes and documents about the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. It was framed as an independent movement, but its ties to politicians from the Trump administration and sitting members of Congress are becoming clearer. In focus, the over 2,000 text of former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows that he submitted to the U.S. House of Representatives Select Committee. The messages reveal a cadre of Trump's inner circle and supporters, including several Republican lawmakers, who were in favor of overturning the election that fateful day. Joining me now to discuss the latest with the investigation into January 6th is Boston Globe senior opinion writer and inaugural columnist for The Emancipator, Kimberly Atkins Store. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I am really glad to be here with you. And you recently hosted an episode of the public radio show On Point about the investigations into the insurrection and what's going on. So let's start with Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin. He's a member of the House Select Committee investigating January 6th, and he has said that public hearings are going to start in June. And the committee will aim to release a report about the investigation at the end of summer or early fall. They have interviewed over 800 witnesses, including Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, uh, VP Mike Pence's chief of staff. So can you walk us through what we are building up to um, in terms of what these hearings might mean? So I think the hearings, once they begin, will become the public face of what this very intense, very just voluminous investigation has been. Keep in mind, leading up to this, they have interviewed, in addition to the witnesses you mentioned, hundreds of other people. They have obtained documents. I don't even know the the denominator to, to use to, to describe how many documents, tens of thousands, perhaps more. They have been working for uh, over a year. This has been an intensive and extensive investigation. But I think the hardest part of their task now is in these public-facing hearings, painting a clear, concise, easily digestible picture for the American people to make clear not only what happened, but why it's important, why it is urgent for action to be taken to make sure this never happens again, and also those who broke the law, who violated our constitution, who tried to cut the legs out of our very system of democracy are held accountable. That's going to be a hard job, but that's what these public hearings are about. It's very much how during Watergate, it was the public hearings that really turned the tide of American sentiment. They're trying to catch that lightning in a bottle again. But during the Mueller hearings, it was you know, compared to what some people thought, a little bit of a nothing burger. So could that happen again? It's possible. The one thing that's different with the January 6th committee is that 
the committee members themselves are going to be speaking in a unified voice. It's not going to be this partisan division within the committee where you had this information going out, but a constant pushback, uh, a constant, at times, gaslighting about what was in it. In the case of the Mueller report, you even had the attorney general at the time, William Barr, who was trying to downplay it and actually falsely represented what it was. In this case, you're going to have every member of this January 6th committee speaking in a clear, unified way. Hopefully, that will give him this opportunity to paint this clear picture for Americans in really a way we have not seen before. Now, there is a lot going on already. Mark Meadows is the former Trump chief of staff, and he stopped cooperating with the select committee in December. The House approved a contempt referral against him. But the Justice Department has not yet brought contempt charges against Meadows. Some people are starting to criticize um, A.G. Merrick Garland for being kind of seeming to lean back a little bit. But other people, you know, also say, don't rush into this. What's the DOJ's role here? And what are some of the sentiments that are being expressed about, you know, how that department is playing its cards? Yes. So the role of the Department of Justice is to investigate and potentially bring charges against those who committed criminal acts. One thing that we've been hearing about is whether the January 6th committee, which their role is not to find crimes, it's to investigate what happened, present a clear picture to the American people, and perhaps propose legislation that can help prevent this from happening again. But they could also send criminal referrals to the Department of Justice, and we've been hearing a lot about whether that might happen. The DOJ can sort of make the drum beat a little louder in the areas that the members of the committee believe that lawlessness took place. As far as what the DOJ might do, I, I'm a co-host of another podcast called Hashtag Sisters in Law, and we're kind of split half and half about whether to criticize <laughs> Merrick Garland or mm. to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, we don't know everything that happens in the DOJ. Two of my, um, I'll say all three of my sisters in law are former federal prosecutors and say, wait a minute, we don't know everything that Merrick Garland knows. So it's not for us to criticize they have to be very careful and thorough, particularly when you're dealing with January 6th and particularly when you are dealing with a former president and they may not be signaling everything that they are doing. There's also the consideration that for all we know, there may be a possibility that the DOJ thinks they can get Mark Meadows or others to give them more information, to cooperate more and maybe holding off on these charges might encourage that. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that time is running out not necessarily in terms of the ability to bring criminal charges, but A, in the amount of time the, this is going to hold America's attention, and B, before the next election, yeah. when a lot of things can change in practical purposes. So I'm on the side of people that I'm getting antsy um, about what the attorney general will do and when, but we will have to see. Only they know and only the folks uh, at Maine Justice know, and we'll have to wait to find out. What are you going to be keeping your eye on? as you continue to pay attention to this story in your work. You're a lawyer. What are, what are you keeping your eye on? And, and what do you think, you know, um, we should be keeping our eyes on? Well, I think, you know, we have these headlines that seem to come out every day just with information more shocking than the day before about people who were clearly involved in the planning in the days leading up to January 6th, um, the things that have been proven to be lies that people have told, including members of Congress, about what happened on January 6th. And it's very easy to get caught up in that daily headline. 
What I'm looking for the most, aside from what I talked about earlier, is whether the committee can deliver that clear, concise message, that story to the American people that is convincing. What I don't want to get lost is the fact that January 6th was built around this effort to try to deny the votes from not just any Americans, but a very specific subset of Americans from being counted. Folks in places like Detroit and Philly and Atlanta and Milwaukee. Who lives in those places? Mm -hmm. These are black voters. This is right after in 2020, black voters mobilized, got out and braved a pandemic to not only vote a Democrat into the White House, but to, in one of the most historic things that has ever happened in this country, send not one, but two senators to Washington from Georgia. And that changed the course of the ensuing two years politically. And this was an effort to help try to stop that specifically. So I really hope that the race element of this, the voter suppression efforts that have, that preceded and followed that, are a part of this committee's work because Americans also need to see very clearly why that is just as dangerous to our democracy as the people breaking the windows at the U.S. Capitol and how they are related. Well, this is a perfect chance to switch to some of the other work you're doing. Um, The Emancipator, it is a new organization with the stated mission, quote, to resurrect and reimagine the first abolitionist newspaper in the U.S. for a modern news era. And it just launched. So your framing of January 6th and its relevance to multiracial, pluralistic democracy leads me to ask, you know, what's your role at The Emancipator and what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, so I am um, the lead and inaugural columnist for... Um, the Emancipator, which is a, an independent publication, which takes its inspiration from the abolitionist newspapers from the 19th century. These are the newspapers who that not only advocated for the end of slavery, that was sort of the starting point for them. When you go back and read them, what these writers were doing was reimagining a future in which Black people could be fully participating citizens in this nation. Black people would not just be free from enslavement, but they would be fully enfranchised, able to vote, able to run for office, able to start businesses, able to get an education, start schools, run universities, be fully participating citizens. And so what we want to do here at The Emancipator is not just look backwards, not just examine what the problems are in our society and where the built-in Um, systemic racism is in our institutions, but be forward thinking and think about how can we get to that place where Black people and Brown people are fully realized participating citizens in this country? And what are the solutions? Who is in the position to implement these solutions? And how do we get there? So that's the starting point here. I'm hoping that this opens a conversation. Already I've received great feedback from people in positions who uh, have great ideas, who want to make change, who have want to add even more to the conversation, which is exactly what I wanted. So I hope that they do what they can. I hope that they contribute to The Emancipator to keep this conversation going um, and continue to think out of the box about ways to find anti-racist solutions to the 
segregation and discrimination that's in our systems. You can find The Emancipator at theemancipator.org. That's Kimberly Atkins Store, Boston Globe senior opinion writer and inaugural columnist for The Emancipator. Coming up next, we go deeper into the roots of the insurrection. I have a conversation with our senior producer, Bianca Martin, about my own three decades of covering politics from the field. And then we dive deeply into a radio documentary I did during the 2010 midterms that foreshadows what's happening today. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politics. So usually I am in the interviewer seat, but today I wanted to take some time to explain more about the years of work that I've done covering politics in the field and how that informs our work on this show. I believe that the United States is in a crisis of democracy and civil society. And of course, that is not just about insurrection or even voting rights. I believe that true democracies respect their citizens in ways that have to do with our need for community, safety, employment, health, education, and more. And that's why we started this show. Sometimes, though, I worry that all this talk about insurrection seems floaty, disconnected from our daily lives. So I brought in our ace senior producer, Bianca Martin, to interview me about what I've seen and heard and learned over the years. Hey, Bianca. Hi, Farai. Yes, let's first go back to that moment in time when rioters, some armed, stormed the U.S. Capitol calling to overturn the 2020 presidential election. It was a stunning event. Did the insurrection surprise you? Not one bit. No, I mean, in fact, I went on WDET, the public radio station in Detroit. This was after we had voted, but before the election results came in because of that delay over counting. And... uh, I was asked, you know, what's going to happen? And I said, Biden is going to win. I usually don't make predictions, but I got tired, basically, of years of being told when when I said, I think this is going to happen, we should cover it, that X, Y, or Z, like my editors were like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And then it happened. So I was like, you, you know what? I'm just going to call it. I said, look, Biden's going to win. And then there's going to be political violence because it has been instigated. I called it. I named it. I have reported on extremism for 25 years. This was planned in plain sight. And even though some reporters talked about it, a lot of people didn't. I was not surprised one bit. And I don't think journalism should have been caught flat-footed in the way that it was. And you went out reporting on January 6th. Why did you choose to do that? And, And what did you do? Well, we actually played some of it here on the show. You know, I was already hosting and producing this show, and I went out specifically to the nonviolent portion of the Stop the Steal rally to observe. I knew that it was likely to get violent later, um, very likely, like 99% chance of rain. Um, And I went by the ellipse, which was the main rally, and saw that the energy was very negative. As a reporter who's been in riots, who's interviewed armed Klan members in, uh, you know, a snowy park and ride lot with no one else around, my spidey sense has to be 100 or else I could go down. And I never take for granted 
what the the risks are of field reporting. So my spidey sense said, okay, yeah, this is ramping up. So I actually went and interviewed protesters closer to the White House because that was further, you know, people have group dynamics. The way you feel energy at a concert, you're like, yay. People also feel energy at insurrections, riots, you know, things like that. So I was like, let me get further from the energy, but talk to people carrying huge Trump banners, et cetera. You know, people of all races. And um, I also wanted to respect that not everyone that was there to cause harm. You know, I think I have tried to take pains in my reporting to disaggregate political sentiment from violence and also political sentiment from harm. What I was looking for was belief. And what I mean by belief was who believed that this was a democratic election. And a lot of the people I interviewed who were not there for violence did not believe that America's democracy was working. Just as an example of the many different types of people I spoke with, I spoke with a young black man from Massachusetts, Jay, who was at the time 26 years old. Well, I just feel from my personal perspective that um, the media has kind of portrayed him to be this disgusting, like, misogynistic, racist bigot, you know, and I just don't see it, you know what I mean? Um, I do my own research. I don't listen to the media anymore. I used to. And I felt like I was being brainwashed at the end of the day. So I was like, I don't like to be taken advantage of in that way. And that's why I came out to support him just from that simple fact alone. And a lot of the people I interviewed very much truly believed that Donald Trump had won re-election, which he did not, but just saying. And here we are today (laughs) with the same sentiments bubbling up, right? And so... Mm -hmm. I just want to ask, how are you feeling now you know, as more evidence is coming forward on the January 6th insurrection? The feeling was palpable that day, uh, as you mentioned. It's it's coming back. How are you feeling? I've honestly been processing a huge amount of resentment about how in the journalism industry, a lot of people who tried to cover what became the roots of the insurrection were viewed as biased, particularly if we were people of color, you know. Um, And I had a really hard time in my newsroom in 2016. Later studies proved that racial resentment was the number one uh, predictor of, you know, Trump vote in that election. And at the time, I presented a lot of evidence that we needed to pay attention to racial resentment, and I was squashed. And this is not that all Republicans are racist or all white people are racist or all Republicans are white. None of those are true. But this was a reality of how xenophobia was used to market to voters. And that marketing of xenophobia then created yet more xenophobia. Racial resentment has been used since the beginnings of American society by different politicians and different factions to get their needs taken care of. Um, And I saw this and I thought it was dangerous in 2016. And I also saw how various levels of of sentiment had also been cross-pollinated with the white nationalist and supremacist movements. You know, there are people marketing guns under the the aegis of boogaloo. Many people view this as, you know, the the ability to end society as we know it, and sometimes under the banner of a race war. There's a, a whole concept of a racial holy war. These things sound really, like, out there and disconnected, but they actually lead to uh, things like increases in ammo sales, um, you know, the polarization of extremist 
inside the military and recruitment inside the military. Now I feel um, this weird mix of sometimes the anger and the resentment and the frustration I talk about, but also free from gaslighting. A lot of people I know who've covered extremism feel this way too. It's like you've been telling people, an asteroid's about to hit the Earth, an asteroid's about to hit the Earth. Hey, look, there's an asteroid about to hit the Earth. And finally, when other people see it, everyone's like, oh my gosh, but at least you're not disbelieved anymore. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it it does make sense. The events we saw on January 6th, it didn't happen in a vacuum. You've been reading the tea leaves. You reported on the many threads of racial resentment and xenophobia in a documentary that we're about to share with everyone listening. Talk about what it is and why you want us to listen to this now. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, we tend to be focused on whatever's right in front of us, and by we, I mean human beings in general, I think it's important to realize that this buildup to a crisis of democracy that we're living through has been happening for years. There have been people strategizing and, um, you know, creating laws and practices and organizing around challenging the concept of democracy and who belongs in American democracy and who gets to be treated what ways in the United States. And as I began reflecting about How we got to the insurrection, I really traced back the first time that I felt a sense of existential threat to American democracy. Um, And that was while reporting this documentary. It's called Pop and Politics Radio. And my team traveled hundreds of miles in Florida and hundreds of miles in Arizona. We went to the U.S.-Mexico border. We interviewed Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Um, we, we talked to lawmakers. We talked to immigration activists. We went to the Colorado River Tea Party Convention. And I later brought one of the organizers of the Colorado River Tea Party Convention to Harvard to speak to students. I do not believe in living in a bubble. I do not believe in isolating myself from the world. I've taken great pains and great risks to try to engage with America. But sometimes America also takes me back, you know? And this was a time where I went and I got a story that I think could help us understand how we got to today. And that's why I wanted to share it now with all of us here at Our Body Politic. Thank you, Farai. Thanks, Bianca. That was Our Body Politics senior producer Bianca Martin talking to me about covering American democracy and insurrection. And now here is some of my 2010 radio documentary, Pop and Politics Radio. I designed it, hosted it, and also co-produced with WNYC and American Public Media. In some ways, it's hard to believe that this was 12 years ago, but in other ways, it feels like the on-ramp to the challenges that we're facing in today's America. In April, Arizona Governor Jan Brewer signed State Senate Bill 1070 into law. Though many people disagree, I firmly believe it represents what's best for Arizona. Immigration enforcement is generally the federal government's territory, but SB 1070 would allow state law enforcement to ask anyone to show documentation that they're here legally at any time. The president weighed in. If we continue to fail to act at a federal level, we will continue to see misguided efforts opening up around the country. A majority of Arizonans and Americans support tougher immigration laws, 
but there are plenty of critics. They need to stop the SB 1070. Uh, it's going to hurt our community. It's going to hurt everyone. They're blaming every kind of brown person possible for their economic turbulent times. Arizona continues to make headlines because of its laws and its lawmakers. Illegal immigration affects every issue we talk about in this economy. Education, health care, crime, taxes, all of that is a direct, and it's a negative impact, not a positive impact. That's Arizona State Senator Russell Pierce, who sponsored SB 1070. In July, a federal court put most of the law on hold. One issue at hand, whether the law authorizes racial profiling. Pierce strongly rejects that idea. No, it's an absolute lie. It's an absolute How demeaning to law enforcement. How demeaning to our heroes in blue and brown that patrol 24-7. That is the most absurd comment by the left that could ever be made. It's simply not true. Under federal law, there's no protection from racial profiling. For Pierce, the political has a tinge of the personal. In 2004, his son, a sheriff's deputy, was shot by an immigrant here illegally. But he says that's not why he's fighting for tougher laws. He's eager to see immigration used as a national litmus test. We have weak-kneed politicians who pander to the open border crowd or pander to the cheap labor crowd and ignore the damage this country. Well, a lot of those aren't going to be employed after November 2010. And that'll be a good thing for America. Before going into politics, Russell Pierce was in law enforcement. For 23 years, he worked for the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department, and he himself was shot in the line of duty. But people who have to enforce the laws in Arizona today, including SB 1070, don't always agree on tactics. Tony Estrada is the sheriff of Santa Cruz County, which lies right on the Mexican border. My feelings on uh, Senate Bill 1070 is I'm very adamantly against it. From the very beginning, I used to tell people, this is a nightmare. It is a nightmare, and I'll tell you why. I don't care how they, how they amend it, how they tweak it, or how they disguise it. It will lead to racial profile. Sheriff Estrada says that if a new court ruling reinstates the more controversial part of SB 1070, the one that permits stopping people for their ID, he'll enforce it but he's willing to speak out about the law and the realities of border enforcement. They may think that because I am against Senate Bill 1070 that I am for illegal immigration. I am not. I think, like everybody else does, I'm sure, that people should come across the border legally. But the reality is it's not going to happen for a lot of reasons. A lot of the people that are coming are coming from extreme poverty. They have no history. They have no background. They have no papers. They have no chance of getting a visa or a work permit. So they're coming here because they want to survive. So as far as I'm concerned, immigration pales. The biggest problem we have as a nation are drugs. The sheriff is in Nogales, Arizona, on one side of a border fence. Nogales, Mexico, is on the other. A series of tunnels run underneath the border, dug by smugglers of drugs and of people. Sheriff Estrada wishes enforcement would focus more on drug crime. Some of the politicians say there will be no immigration reform until we secure the border. There is no such thing as a secure border. The border will always be porous. Why? Because you'll either dig tunnels to get under it, they'll come through the ports, they'll go over the ports. Illegal immigration is a phenomenon. It, it follows a path of employment and demand, and it's going to continue. There's no way you can stop it. 
Going out with a team of reporters gave me a new perspective on day-to-day -day life in southern Arizona. The state is filled with border patrol checkpoints. If you're pulled over, you stop, roll down your window, and agent asks some questions. It can be quick and painless or intimidating. On the way back from a taping, our radio producer Susie was with a local videographer, Antonio. He's originally from Ecuador and he was driving his truck. So here's what happened when they reached that checkpoint. They slowed down, the border patrol agent waved his hand. They both thought it was a keep on going kind of wave, but he wanted them to stop and he was angry that they didn't. Do you all have issues stopping at a stop sign? I didn't even wave at you. Are you both U.S. citizens? Antonio told the agent he's a permanent resident. The agent says, and that's even worse. Do you want to step out of the vehicle? Do you want both of us out? No, just him, the Border Patrol agent said. Just him. Antonio got out of the car. A group of agents took him over to the side of the road and asked him questions. A few really tense minutes later, they let him get back in the car. How do you feel right now? <laughs> That's funny. I don't know. He told me, I don't know if you heard, but he told me that there's like a $10,000 fee for running a stop sign in a border patrol checkpoint. <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. <laughs> but I think he was trying to intimidate me to make me, you know, oh, here are the drugs or something like that, you know. But, you know, I was just like, yeah, I have nothing to be afraid of. So, what are they going to do? Send me back to Ecuador? Okay. Pay for my ticket. I'm going to go for Christmas anyways. <laughs> Some people are getting nervous about how our population is changing. We asked a couple of analysts for the big picture, starting with Mark Lopez of the Pew Hispanic Center. Latinos are a growing population and a relatively young population. So as you move forward in time, we're going to see more and more Hispanics who turn 18, who are U.S. citizens, and then are eligible to vote. And we've actually seen that in, in election cycles over the last 15 or so years, where in each and every election cycle, more Latinos vote. Each and every election cycle, more are registered. In each and every election cycle, Latinos represent a, a larger share of all voters than they did in the previous cycle. The millennial generation is also gaining power, especially after turning out to vote in high numbers in 2008. Erica Williams is the deputy director of Progress 2050, a group that studies younger voters. In about five years, millennials are going to make up, and when I say millennials, I'm referring to young voters right now, age 18 through 29, um, are predicted to make up more than a third of the electorate. So it's a huge generation. Um, and then looking at the trends in ethnicity and diversity and all of the demographic growth that we're expecting, um, by the year 2050, there's going to be no uh, single ethnic or racial majority in the United States. So if you combine those two factors, you're looking at an, uh, an incredible influx of uh, new voters, particularly for the millennial generation that is incredibly diverse. That was a bit of the radio documentary that I created, hosted, and co-produced with WNYC and American Public Media, Pop and Politics Radio. Coming up next, more of my 2010 documentary, Pop and Politics Radio, showing the fraying fabric of American democracy. You're listening to Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. 
On today's show, we've been doing a deep dive into the insurrection on January 6th, the investigation into it, and now we are revisiting a radio documentary I produced that shows the roots of America's political discontent. My producers for this documentary project and I traveled hundreds of miles in both Florida and Arizona for this project. We focused on two states with great political, cultural, economic, and racial diversity and plenty of disparities. Arizona's Sheriff Joe Arpaio became a flashpoint of the political divide. And later in 2017, he became the first person President Donald Trump pardoned. So let's return to the Pop and Politics radio documentary on Arizona. Sheriff Joe Arpaio of Maricopa County, he's made headlines for raiding shops, factories, McDonald's to find people here illegally. To some, Arpaio is a folk hero. To others, a man who's taken federal law into his own hands. We visited the sheriff in his office. Every inch of wall was covered with newspaper clippings about him, posters of him, photos. It's like a shrine. Uh, I've been in uh, sheriff for almost 18 years. My big job was a regional director in Mexico City for the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, including Turkey, the Middle East, Texas, Arizona. I took an oath of office uh, 18 years ago to enforce all the laws. It is a very volatile situation. It's very controversial, this illegal immigration situation. I've been investigated, still am, I presume, by the U.S. Justice Department, civil rights, 60 days into the Obama administration. They started investigating me for alleged uh, racial profiling. So I only say that uh, because I'm doing my job, but there seems to be a little trend here of uh, politics involved. Tell me about the citizens who you recruit to do law enforcement who are, who are not sheriffs, who are not uh, paid officials. How do you approach the idea of citizens participating in law enforcement? Well, you know, uh, since I've been a sheriff, we call that the posse. Uh, uh, here uh, under the, uh, the law, I can swear in private citizens. We have almost 3,000. 57 different posses, including airplanes, Jeeps, motorcycles, saves the taxpayers millions and millions of dollars. They pay for everything. We never had any problems with uh, the posses, uh, shooting people and so on. So I am going to form Posse 58, which will be a special posse uh, dedicated to uh, enforce the illegal immigration laws. And they all work for me, free. They don't do what I say, I fire them. They don't get money anyway, but they have to turn in their uh, badge. Maricopa County has one of the highest rates of being sued of any sheriff's department in the country. In a 1996 case, an inmate died while in a restraining chair after being beaten by officers. The inmate's family settled a wrongful death lawsuit for more than $8 million. Sheriff Arpaio says he wishes the lawyers hadn't settled the case. He also defends the Tent City Jail, a place where inmates have to live outdoors in scorching weather. The sheriff tends to exaggerate the temperature a bit. I have uh, room for 2,500 people in the desert. I put up the Korean War tents. Over half a million people have come through our tents. I know it gets hot, like 140 degrees in the summer. It doesn't bother me. And the tents are so bad. Why did four presidential candidates visit me in the tents? Why would they stand next to me and say, we love this program? I'm talking about Senator Dole ran for president. He came. Phil Graham of Texas, he came. Governor Wilson came. McCain came. Of course, they all lose. They never win when they visit the tents. 
You seem to really love your job. What do you love about it? The people. What keeps me going is when the people come up to me and say, thank you, sure. Thanks for what you're doing. And they call me racist and everything, but uh, you know, I know I'm not. I don't care what they call me. In my heart, I know I'm not. If you were President Obama, what would you do about illegal immigration? If I was the president, what I would do, I know how to solve the problem at the border. Nobody asked. Why don't they ask me my opinion? Well, I'm, I'm asking you right now, so what well, would you do? Thank you for asking me. You're one of the few that will ask, including the media. Thank you for doing that. I know where the border is. I'm the guy that spent all those years there. And we have a border, 2,000 miles. We have violence across the border. Let's send our army across the border to work with their army like I used to work with their army in Mexico. Oh, that probably will never happen. But we send armies to Iraq, Afghanistan, because of terrorism. I'm talking about bilateral now, not unilateral. Bilateral, which means we work together, they ask us. You would open up another front, essentially, along the border. Is that what you're saying? Is that practical? No, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I wouldn't even call it a war. I call it police action. As we headed out the door, the sheriff told us to be sure and visit his tent city jail. He even told us to visit in the afternoon when it was hotter. So we did. Well, put it this way, it's very, very hot. <laughs> it's actually really hot. It's extremely warm in the summertime, 108, 111. The yard is packed gravel. Green tents house metal bunk beds with faded pink sheets. Pink towels hang off the rails of the beds, and the men are wearing pink boxer shorts, a deliberate choice by Sheriff Arpaio, explained to us by one of the prisoners. The, the, the reason they has pink is to, to de degrade the man. We're men. Uh, we know pink is for the girls, and then pink is, you know, feminine. And now you have the pink is to, to degrade the man to make us feel lower than what you know, we already are. I traveled to the border in the Tucson sector to meet with Al Garza. He used to be the national director of the Minutemen. Then he started his own organization called Patriots Coalition. Day and night, he goes out on patrol, watching for people crossing illegally. His group doesn't have the authority to apprehend people. They call Border Patrol if they see someone suspicious. Now, I've been at this now for seven years. I'm a retired private investigator from Southern California. I am a Mexican descent. I'm fifth generation in the United States. You okay? Shorty? <laughs> right now we're going to a place called Huachuca Mountains. The Huachuca Mountains are very commonly known for the illegal activity that we are currently facing in this nation. We're approximately about 45, maybe 50 miles from the border. And believe it or not, at one point, it was just like the border because the traffic was so immense and so intense. That's not the case anymore because we do exist here as Minutemen. By the way, our functions uh, vary from time to time, but the most important ones, uh, we observe, spot, and report. And that's all we do. And it's very effective. To the right, we're now getting, approaching the Fort Huachuca, as I said before. Uh, and, of course, along with uh, not only illegal aliens, now you also, uh, we, we know for a fact that uh, there are uh, countries of interest that are utilizing uh, these uh, different 
entries, if you will, countries like Iran, Iraq, Somalia, the list goes on. We have found, by the way, Korans, rugs, uh, turbans, uh, flight tickets. When I talked to the Border Patrol spokesman, he hadn't heard of any Korans being found in the desert. And even if he had, said the spokesman, a religious book is not necessarily a sign of terror. It's a piece of personal property. Yet Al Garza feels motivated by many things to travel the border. Actually, to be quite honest with you, uh, it's become a spiritual warfare. And I'm a Christian, and I'm very proud of it. I believe in our, our principles. I believe in our foundation. Uh, this is what got us uh, through through it all for 200 years. The government isn't doing it. We've got to come, come out here. I don't like spending my money. Gas is expensive. Why should I be forking money out of my pocket? I'm doing it because my country depends on it. Although a lot of people are oblivious to what's going on. At one point, I was very proud to say that I was of Mexican descent. I no longer can say that. I don't feel that I've got that pride anymore because of what I've seen. So I'm about a lot of things, but I am first and most and foremost, I'm about rule of law. You're listening to Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. This week, we're focusing on the roots of America's crisis of democracy by revisiting my 2010 radio documentary on an Arizona and an America divided. Now let's go back to the documentary. We are here at the Huachuca Mountains. Out here, we're commonly known for carrying weapons. I'm licensed to carry one, and it's concealed. And the only time that thing should come out is when I'm either checking it for safety or I'm going to fire at something. In this case, I was checking for safety. <laughs> I'll show it to you. This is a 10 millimeter weapon. More likely than anything else, it's going to be for uh, rattlesnakes and things of this nature because uh, typically you wouldn't fire upon anyone unless you have to. A lot of people ask me, well, what does that mean? I don't know. I've never encountered it, uh, but I'll know it when I see it. And I'm going to show you some area that is commonly known for illegal uh, aliens, drugs, and a lot of coyotes. The coyotes, I don't know if you're familiar with the term. Not the coyote, the four-legged one, but the coyote that actually brings people in. If I point to my, to my right, which in this case would be south west uh, there's trails that you we can see that are actually white in color those are the areas that we look for to my left i see some shiny object that potentially could be someone spotting us well here's a sock that would belong to a kid a baby they will stop for example here and wait for someone to pick them up and while they're doing that they will change their their baby and they themselves will change into other clothing so the idea here is to, once they get to this point and away from here, to mix in with the public. What better way to do it than with another set of clothes? Nobody knows where they went. Nobody knows who they are unless you catch them in the act. So you see what it's really, it's, it's all about. It's a reconquista movement. It's a takeover. Whose American dream is it anymore? What are they discussing in Congress? Are they discussing what's best for me and for you? I mean, we pay these people to represent the best interests of Americans. Are they really doing it? They're not. Being a patriot, it doesn't mean that you sit on the couch, eat potato chips, drink beer, and then talk about what nonsense is going on. You do actually get up and you do something about it. This is land of the Tejano Autumn tribe. Theirs is the third largest Native American reservation in the United States, about the size of Connecticut. And their tribe has been hit with some of the same problems of border drug smuggling and crime that affect other regions. Sometimes their own members have gotten involved. It's all part of a series of changes that have troubled people like Art Wilson. 
Art is a member of the tribe. He's 52. As he showed me around, he remembered how the border used to be much more fluid. It's real evident that it's two separate countries now. When I was growing up, it wasn't that. I, I, I never knew or never even thought I was in a different country. I just figured I was in Autumn land. A treaty between the U.S. and Mexico in 1853 split Autumn lands in two. But it's only within recent history that the border fence and stricter enforcement have made it harder for people to cross. The day I visited the reservation was the second anniversary of Art Wilson's mother's death. He and his family were preparing for a ceremony to honor her memory. We're making jamat, tortillas. There have been conflicts along this border for generations. When Art's grandmother was five, the U.S. government came onto Autumn lands and took the children away to boarding schools to be assimilated into American culture. I never really made the connection of the trauma of it all until when I, I think when my daughter turned five and one time I was telling somebody this story and I said, God. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't in my wildest dreams imagine my five-year-old being taken away from me. I mean, I've almost lost her at fairs and stuff like that. Your heart drops and you just like, but they kept her out there. She couldn't come home. She was able to come home, I think around, she said around about the age of 15. But just kind of understanding human behavior, why she was so bitter against whites. Do you know if your grandmother was allowed to speak Otam? No, she said they were. They would put soap in their mouths if they were caught talking Otam. Most of the younger people here speak the language, or is it something where people are losing it? The language is being lost, and, and I, I don't say it's lost. It's still there. It's just that we're not teaching it because there's there's no need. I had to speak for me to communicate to my grandfather because he didn't speak English. My grandmother would always say that, you don't have blonde hair, you don't have blue eyes, so why do you need to speak English? And she would say... How do you, how do you say that? You're in Congressman Grijalva's district, correct? Mm-hmm. Do you feel that he or anyone else in... The U.S. government, not not tribal government, is doing a good job of representing you. And, and is there a big push to get people involved in voting? I know there is a push right now. The tribe is trying to register new voters. And I don't think Grijalva is uh, representing as well in the sense that, I mean, I mean this, um, this bill, what's it? SB 1070. SB 1070. I know it's kind of got some mixed feelings, but... To us, I mean, why are they making such a big deal out of it? I mean, we go through the same thing. They they put, they ask us to pull out our tribal IDs. We have to carry our IDs with us. What's the difference? What gets me angry is, I mean, everything seems to be going into Mexican. You see red, white, and green flags. And, and I mean, like, we had to assimilate. I mean, why don't they have to? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of that... <laughs> You know, I see the importance that the Mexican people have brought to us, but I also see the bad that has come with that. So what does it do to home when you have a border 
a national border running through it. To me, it was it was sad the first time I saw it. I I felt like crying because if somebody were to come into your home where you live right now and to say, okay, this part of the house is not yours. And you feel sad, but yet you also feel powerless because there's nothing you can do. So if you, these are not the only choices, but if you had to choose between either there was a solid fence running along the border or that the land was open once again, that the Otom people could travel freely, but that there were more border crossings, which would you choose? Um, you're asking me a hard question. <laughs> right now, because of the safety issue, I would say I would see it as being secure, being solid. But my heart also kind of cries because it's that cutoff between the land I know that you can't go back to yesteryears. So if anything, I would see the, the solidness because of the danger that is there. I guess that would be my answer. That was a portion of my 2010 audio documentary, Pop and Politics Radio. We wanted to share it with you to give context to our current battles over what democracy really means in the shadow of the insurrection. And you better bet that we will continue to cover the investigation on shows to come. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We are on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Our co-executive producer is Jonathan Blakely. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booker and producer. Emily J. Daly is our producer. Our associate producer is not Tina Bean. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three C's. Today's episode was produced with the help of Steve Lack and Lauren Schild and engineered by Archie Moore. The Pop and Politics radio documentaries were produced by Nona Willis-Aronowitz, Aaron Ernst, Nellie Black, Ave Carrillo, Susie Lichtenberg, and Carrie Donahue. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. <laughs>